It is good to be here together. Um, if you remember from the last two weeks, we are just diving into a, a new sermon series um, this summer about how the Bible shows that the church is always meant to be together and what that looks like. And today, we're going to be looking at God's word together to learn about the biblical basis for worshiping together through music and specifically why the Bible places significance and even mandates that we do it together rather than alone. First though, I do want to discuss a few different types of music um, and how they relate to worship because there are helpful distinctions that should be made before we dive into this topic. And as we seek to do that and learn from the word, will you please pray with me? God, we come to you this afternoon and we ask that you would humble us. We ask that your truth would be on our mind and that we would learn from your word more about your truth and more about who you are. I ask that you would use the words that I've prepared and if there's anything that is an error that you would bless the congregation by letting their ears not hear it. And, and Lord, let them only hear what is your truth and what is from your word so that you may be glorified and that your people may be edified. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. <laughs> As we see, um, it's fair to say that for most of us, music holds a profound importance and many times on a deeply emotional level. In light of those deep personal and emotional connections, we want to um, be careful just to make sure, I, I want to use um, specific definitions just to make sure that we, we don't offend anyone's personal taste in music or their personal worship especially. We just actually saw and participated in two different kinds of music, both of which um, can be a form of worship. So I think it'd be wise for us first to understand what the definition of worship is. When the word worship is used in the Bible, it is a response. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, the word translates to a bowing down, a reverent acknowledging and offering of attention and homage. It's, it's the response that the Israelites were commanded not to have for anything but their God. And it's the response that the shepherds had at the birth of Jesus. It's the response that saturates the book of Revelations to show that in the end, all attention will be on our God. Worship is our response to and our acknowledgement of who God is. We are to live our lives in worship to him. We bow down in spirit and truth wherever we are through whatever we're doing. So with that simple but clear understanding of worship, I think it's safe then to make the distinction that worship is not synonymous with music. Music can be a form of worship. In fact, it's the very form of worship that we'll be spending our time on today. But worship has many other forms as well. Prayer and teaching from the Bible are just two other easy examples of corporate worship. And past that, it's made clear in 1 Corinthians that whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever we do, as we seek to follow and obey our Lord, can and ought to be worship of him. So worship is not music alone. And that's precisely why when we've talked about it, you've probably heard Mackenzie and I refer to our ministry as the music ministry rather than the worship ministry. 
And I would invite you all to contemplate doing the same because the preaching every week and, and the prayer gatherings on Sunday mornings are just as much a worship ministry as what Mackenzie and I do. But what we do does bring us to the first distinction of the two types of music we saw this morning. What Mackenzie and I and the music team do and what we seek to do every week is lead the body in worshiping through music. And this is what we're going to spend most of our time on today because this is what is most often portrayed in the Bible and it's what we believe is the most dependable and intentional way for the purpose of worshiping together as the body in unity in our gatherings. Worshiping together through music is unique because the worship should already be present before the music happens. Let me say that again. The worship should already be present before the music happens. Our mission isn't to find music to motivate worship or induce emotions. Music can and often does have a calming and soothing effect for the spirit, but that's not what we're looking for when we're selecting it. Our hope is that the body is already filled with and dwelling on biblical truth. And our mission is to find and play music that would give the best opportunity to express those emotions that would already be present and resulting as a personal response to God's word and actions, the emotions that result from worship. And by doing this together, by God's glorious design, we are experiencing a crucial facet of sanctification that we'll look at in a little bit. And we're also experiencing a present representation of how the church will behave through the other side of eternity and for all time. The second type of music we saw, which Lindsay graciously blessed us with, was using music as an act of worship. And if you were here several weeks ago, you were also blessed by Pastor Yu in this way. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and this was a regular part of the service. Um, after the sermon, there would be a time of offering, and this wasn't just for monetary giving, but there would always be a soloist or some kind of ensemble that would bring an offering of music. So music as an act of worship, it is pretty self-explanatory. It's when someone is using the gift that God gave them in a beautiful way, and the sheer beauty of the use of that gift directs their mind to God, and therefore it's worship. The same is said for the receiving end. When we hear and see Lindsay's gifts and the beauty and the complexity of the musical exhibition, if our hearts are in the right place, we will be directed to praising God for what he has given her and what it results in. And there is a third type of music that we didn't listen to, and it's not objectively a form of worship to our God, and that's music used as a common grace. For this, you can imagine a profound and moving love song or, or the soundtrack to a favorite movie that just really brings you into the moment. And let me make clear that in the same way that we can respond to Lindsay's music in worship, if our heart is in the right place, we can still respond, to, respond in worship when we hear music exercised as a common grace. That being said, musical talent is something that could be given to anyone, no matter their worldview. The atheist, the Muslim, the Catholic, or the Hindu, they're all capable of creating beautiful music and even more so capable of having an emotional response to the music. I would never dream of saying that music used as a common grace is bad, unless, of course, the lyrics are plainly sinful. But if we were only to play five selections of beautiful classical music, or even a profound love song every church service, 
then our time together would certainly be lacking in worship to God, and the music ministry would be falling short of its purpose. So with those distinctions made, let's jump into focusing on why it's so important for us to understand and to participate in coming together physically as the church to worship together through our singing. In the book of Ephesians chapter five, we're given instructions on what our Christian walk and the church is supposed to look like. Um, if you'll open your Bibles to chapter Ephesians 5, verse 15. Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, Paul is giving instructions on what the believers are to be identified by, on what we as believers are to be identified by, Every point he makes is important, and it's something we ought to heed, because all these points are consistent with what the entire Bible says about what it means to be a born-again believer, that we are made new. We were one way, and now we're another way. But when the topic of music comes up, there's a distinct route to the instruction to sing songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Every other one of these mandates is something that we can work on and exercise throughout the entire day, and I hope we do. From the moment we wake, we can heed that we walk in wisdom, not as unwise. Because we know that we live in an evil time and a fallen world, we ought to be on our guard through every moment of our day, seeking to understand what the will of the Lord is, rather than wandering about with no caution, following the foolishness of the world and our own flesh. Our minds should be actively propelled by the Spirit, not dulled and deluded in the comfort of drunkenness. All these things are so important. So what is it that sets the instructions on singing music apart? Well, it says it right there, addressing one another. When we sing, when we're mandated to sing, it is in the context of being together. Paul clearly indicates it's something that is done with one another. Every other one of these instructions is something that we can do on our own, individually, um, even in solitude. But when it comes to music, there is an intentional distinction made that it's something that happens in our gatherings as a church body. This doesn't mean that singing songs and making music on your own is not worship or not good. We've already kind of addressed that when we started. And the Bible doesn't say that you shouldn't do that. But we should take special care to ask why, when it does instruct us on our music, it is in the context of gathering together, why it matters that we sing together, when we're all capable of singing praises alone in our car during our commute to work. Why is it important that there would be a horizontal trajectory of our music, addressing one another for something that has a vertical end, making melody with our heart to the Lord? We actually find the answer for this in an interesting place. In 1 Corinthians, Paul spends a fair amount of time defending, de defining and valuing gifts from the Spirit in the church. 
And it seems that the church in Corinth was so eager to use the gifts of the Spirit that it was causing commotion and confusion and even rivalry. In chapter 14, Paul tackles the confusion that results specifically from people's usage of the gift of speaking in different languages. A lot of his argument is showing how it's better to prophesy or speak forth truth in the context of church gatherings as opposed to speaking in different languages. He is initially calling out these two gifts specifically, but we will see how we will see how the point he makes applies to so much more, especially the horizontal aspect of our worshiping together through music. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Paul says, I thank God that I speak in other languages more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another language. Brothers, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It's written in the law, I will speak to these people by people of other languages and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. It follows that speaking in other languages is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Therefore, if the whole church is assembled together and all are speaking in other languages and people who are uninformed or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convicted by all and is judged by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed. And as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. What then is the conclusion, brothers? Whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. Some of Paul's most profound instructions tend to come from his corrections of the church. He doesn't outright say that the gift of speaking in different languages is bad. In fact, he actually quotes scripture to confirm its validity. But in doing that, he clarifies that the way the Corinthian church was using the gift was not appropriate for the purpose of the church gatherings. He describes this scene where members of the church would be exercising the gift of speaking in different languages all at the same time, and how it would be outright confusing for someone that walked in not knowing what was going on. He also compares it to the gift of prophecy, which is the speaking forth of truth, which isn't necessarily always prediction. We're shown how it is so much better if someone were to come into our gatherings hearing the blatant truth of God preached, because whether they're an unbeliever or not, the truth cuts the heart. Paul goes on to give specific instructions and protocols for the use of these two gifts in the church gatherings, but he also includes several other aspects of our gatherings, including, if you caught it, our singing. Whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. The end of all these things, just like it says, is that the body would learn and be encouraged that we would build one another up. This is why it matters that our worship through music is done together, so that we may edify one another. Then what does that look like? 
We understand the profound lesson and the reason for singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together is to build one another up. But what does it actually look like when that happens? Scripture gives us a brief but beautiful story where this happens, and it gives us an opportunity to see how these types of music result in our edification. Um, if you would turn to Acts chapter 16, we won't read through the entire context of the story, but to sum it up, this is a story where we find Paul and Silas being arrested after Paul has cast out a spirit from a slave girl. We're told that this girl has a spirit of divination and that she was following the missionaries around for many days, proclaiming that they were servants of God and that they proclaimed the way to salvation. Eventually, it seems out of pure annoyance that Paul casts out a spirit, the spirit from her in the name of Jesus. And because this girl's owners were making money from her divinations, they were furious about this, and they brought Paul and Silas in front of the local magistrates, who, whether it be from their own corruption or just giving in to the pressure of the crowd, they neglected to do any investigating of the charges, and they had Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into jail. And in verse 25 of chapter 16, we're shown what the missionaries do next. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. We're only given one verse here that describes their singing, but think about all they had just been through. Think about what struggles Paul specifically could be dealing with. They were spending their time preaching the gospel to these people. They were out there telling the good news and being obedient to God. And this girl was actually confirming who they were. I won't say this is what Paul was thinking, but I know if I were in that situation, I would have been burdened with frustrations and doubts, thinking, should I not have done that? Could I still be out there preaching the gospel to these people now if I hadn't let my annoyances get to me? Satan is the accuser, and that's where these kind of lies come, to, come from when we hear them. And we know from Paul's other writings that he was not exempt from the struggles of the flesh or attacks from the enemy. But we see that rather than dwelling on discouragement and despair, Paul and Silas end up praying and singing together. The rest of the story goes on to describe, that the, describe the incredible conversion of the jailer after Paul and Silas remained in the jail cell even though God took open the doors and removed their shackles. But scripture doesn't indicate that their praying and their singing were intentionally for that purpose. I think, actually, based on what we've already learned, that Paul and Silas were singing together for the purpose of building one another up in this situation. Um, we're not given a clear clue of what specific song they were singing, but when we look at the nature of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we get a really good idea of the building up that would have been taking place in their gathering. Let's assume that Paul and Silas were singing a psalm from the Old Testament. The beautiful thing about psalms is that they are the word of God. So then the truth about the word of God from 2 Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That truth is true about Psalms. They are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We can depend on the Psalms for these things because the scriptures say we can. 
I'm going to read Psalm 130. We actually sing an arrangement of this song um, together at Risen Hope. And as it's read, pay attention to what it's teaching, what we can use from it for reproof and correction, and how we can be sanctified by it. Also, try and put yourself in the position of Paul and Silas, having been beaten and unjustly imprisoned for doing what they believed was right, obedient work for the Lord. Imagine hearing these words sung to you in that situation. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Understand the significance here. We as a body are instructed to, and we have the privilege to sing the word of God together. As comforting as I'm sure these words, as, as comforting as I'm sure these words or other psalms could have been to Paul and Silas in jail, if that's what they sang, and as sweet as beautiful and beautiful as these words are to our souls, we get to mirror that beautiful truth with sweet and beautiful sounds that we make together when we sing as the body. God designed a way for us to worship him where we can be sanctified in unison while we're singing in unison. This is what was happening when Paul and Silas sang together, though it was only two members of the body gathered and definitely not in a church building. Their singing would have had a horizontal function as they addressed one another, being edified and built up in the midst of great suffering. It's difficult for me to think of a more precious way for our unity in the spirit and as one body in Christ to be represented. And this picture of Paul and Silas singing together, edifying one another and making melody to the Lord with their hearts, it definitely makes the list of incredible biblical accounts of the body worshiping their Lord together through music. But God's word does not leave us just with a picture of what our worship through music looks like now. As we said before, we are made new, we are redeemed people, we're citizens of heaven, and we'll spend eternity worshiping our Lord. Scripture is wrought with descriptions of what singing and praising look like to a heavenly degree. Despite our limitations in this world and how we just saw that our singing together for the Lord can sometimes be so limited in quantity to the point of only two members of the body singing together in a jail cell, despite that, we're still given examples of what heavenly worship and praise looks like from the beginning of time throughout eternity. In Job chapter 38, when, when God is giving Job, when God is answering Job with a series of rhetorical questions that declare how he made everything, he includes in verse seven, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Here we see creation and heavenly beings singing to God, shouting for joy together. A similar picture is shown at the birth of Jesus in Luke 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly host praising God. And the most encouraging for me is to see what is to come. Everywhere in the book of Revelation where singing and praising is described, it's always in multiples and great numbers. Revelation 19 verse 1, after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And verse six, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. So we might ask why, why is it a multitude? Why don't we see descriptions of individuals singing to God for eternity? It has everything to do with what God intended the church to be. We are the bride of Christ. In Ephesians 4.3, the church is instructed to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And it goes on to say in verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When all things are made right and new, the church will be perfected. We will have attained the unity described here. There will be no division. We will be of one mind and of one spirit of unity constantly. Therefore, our songs to the Lord will always manifest in a multitude. On that day, when a member of the church sings praises to God, it will never be divided or singled out from another's because we all will be unified in our understanding of our Lord's greatness and have the same praise to give. There is, however, one soloist that is described in the Bible that will be present throughout eternity. The word of God given to the prophet Zephaniah describes the scene of God when he returns to his people. Let's turn to Zephaniah 3, verse 15. It would take me a little longer to find that one, so. <laughs> verse 15 says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. When God's people are made right with him, when he is in their midst, our God sings over his people. This is true about God being made right with Israel, and it's a truth about God that will endure throughout eternity. When his bride is made perfect, the bridegroom will be the glorious soloist for all of eternity, rejoicing in gladness because he has saved and redeemed his bride. We sing to our God together, and he sings over us in delight. What an unbelievably glorious truth about eternity. 
And how overwhelming is it to recognize that we get to start participating in that now? What a privilege. One that I pray we don't take for granted. And that brings me to my last point. If you would turn with me to Amos chapter 5, verse 23. It says, take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. If we're given a clear directive to come together and sing praises to our Lord, why is God telling his people to stop singing? What situation would mean that our God would not listen to the music offered to him by his people? I hope this verse is as sobering for you as it is for me, just to recognize that there is a circumstance where what we do during our time of music might actually not be pleasing to our Lord. And the word of God given through Amos was actually during a time where Israel was experiencing political prosperity and restoration. There was even peace with Judah and other neighbors. For our benefit, God does not leave us wondering what circumstances led to his rejection of Israel's offerings. Turn back to Amos 2 and verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Verse 11. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Much more detail can be pressed out of these passages, but the summary is that despite God defeating Israel's enemies, despite God delivering Israel, and despite God giving Israel holy men like the Nazarites and the prophets, Israel lived contrary to the commands of the Lord. Their hearts were against the ways of the Lord, and they did what was evil in his sight. They were so consumed with greed that they were selling one another into slavery. Their hearts were so opposed to hospitality that they were casting out the poor and maliciously ignoring those in need. They were living in sexual immorality and practicing idolatry using what the Lord meant to be holy and the Lord promised to punish them for it. These circumstances sound extreme, and they are. Serious disobedience is what leads to our God rejecting our music and our praises. Is it any wonder that the epistles are relentless in teaching us what we are to be identified by? So let's return to where we started, Ephesians 5, verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What we can't miss is that for our music to be acceptable praise and worship, for it to actually matter for us to gather together, together as the body and address one another in this way, our hearts must first be in the right place. So here are the questions we should ask. What is it that leads our hearts to be in the right place? What is it that motivates us to heed that we would walk in wisdom rather than foolishness? What brings us to be disciplined and make the best use of our time rather than coast along with this evil world? What causes us to seek sober-mindedness and the filling of the Holy Spirit over the fog and the dulling comfort of drunkenness? What leaves us repeatedly and always inclined to giving thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ? It's nothing less than a right understanding of the gospel. How are we to sing together psalms of praise to our God for defeating our enemies and for being faithful in the most severe hardships we'll journey through if we don't have a right understanding of his perfect and ultimate authority as the one true creator God? How are we to sing as one body hymns that earnestly confess our unlawfulness and our wretchedness and turn to lift up a man who lived a perfect life if we don't first embrace and truly know our condition as sinners against God's law, fallen people who have rightly and justly earned our wages of death and separation from the life of God? How are we in one spirit of unity to sing spiritual songs that describe how the truth of the Bible interacts with every unique experience we can walk through in this life if we haven't responded in faith in Christ Jesus alone and repentance from our previous treasure of sin? We can't. Walking in the light always precedes pre pleasing praises to our Lord whether it be the moment after a sinner's salvation or the thousandth lesson that a s in sanctification a long-time believer learns. In just a moment, we're going to be doing the very things that we've been talking about, worshiping and praising our Lord through music together. And as Jeremy reminded us last week, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament only for those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus. If you are a born-again believer, and if you belong to Christ, during this next song, please take the opportunity to prepare for this. There are the single-serve communion cups at the table at the entrance. If you haven't already taken one, please help yourself. And just like last week, we're going to wait through the first song, and, excuse me, and I'll come up after that and lead us through partaking in the Lord's Supper together. We're called to examine our hearts and motives before we partake in the elements. So let's use this time of worshiping together for reflection and repentance as we prepare to approach the Lord's table together. Please pray with me. Lord, you, you are our Lord and we want to serve you. We belong to you and we do not want to be against your ways at all. We want you to hear our praises 
when we sing together and when we are built up as the church, we want that to be heard by you and it to be a pleasing sound to your ears. I thank you for Risen Hope, Lord, and, and how blessed we are to be able to, to sing together and to worship you and to know that we are your church, that we are unified, and that you hear our praises as your bride. Lord, I ask that you would prepare our hearts, remind us of your gospel, never let us forget the incredible truth of your good news. Let us dwell on that as we come together. And I ask all of these things that you might be glorified. In the name of Jesus, amen.